We are going to start in Daniel today. Of course, we're going to start in Daniel. Last week, we had a introduction to Daniel chapter 4. We covered the first 18 verses. Today, we are going to wrap up that introduction. Uh, but I need to take a little break as you find Daniel chapter 4 because my notes just signed me out of my notes. So I'm going to sign in here and we're going to see if we can make this happen. So as you find Daniel chapter 4, verse 19, um, I'm going to manage this. not working. It's not good news. Might have to follow the screens that were made for me. Let's see if I can get it on this device. Thank you for your patience as we figure this out. Looks like we're going to wing it today. How's that sound? Okay. I'm going to make it happen. All right. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 4. I'm going to read the rest of that chapter because it brings clarification to what the dream was. It's Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream once again, and uh, he's delivering the truth to him. So we're going to read through all of that. We're also going to see at the end of chapter 4 what Nebuchadnezzar's response is to this interpretation of the dream. And then we're going to manage the best that we can to follow along on the screen as I try to fill in all the details. So, Daniel 4, starting in verse 19, if you're able to stand as we read God's word, I know it's a little bit lengthier of a reading today, uh, but we do honor God's word, and so turn your hearts in reverence of reading God's word. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts were alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade, and in those whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with dew from heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come up upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field." You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men 
and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from, that, from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is it not this great Babylon which I have built by my power, my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth were accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will, the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. We see an interpretation of the dream. We see a lot of details here about how God uses correction in our lives. And what I want to, to show you from today is a better understanding of who God is. Of who God is. Because what we see is a mighty, powerful king humbled to the lowliest of beasts. But then we see an acknowledgement of the Most High God by that humbled king. And so I want to show you some very simple points today. The very first one that we see is that God calls us to stand for the truth. You see, what we notice here is that Daniel actually, he's developed this care for the king. This is the same king who was ruthless, who threatened Daniel, who threw his friends into a fiery furnace. But yet, if you notice in verse 19, we see this tenderness that Daniel feels towards the king. He demonstrates care for Nebuchadnezzar as he stands for the truth. Look at verse 19. It says that Daniel was dismayed. His thoughts 
alarmed him because he knew that the dream was basically saying that Nebuchadnezzar was going to be cut down as the tree. He was going to be cut down and he was going to be humbled to the point of being a beast in the field. And Daniel cared for him because he loved him. He knew that this person was rejecting Almighty God, but there was a softening of Nebuchadnezzar's heart over the years, and Daniel became his friend. And so he was alarmed by, the, by the, the truth of this dream. He was alarmed, and it dismayed him. And so we see Daniel, in his stance for the truth, was doing it compassionately, carefully. And we see a very similar response from King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I'm going to say this again because Nebuchadnezzar was not known for his kindness. He was not known for his understanding. He was not known showing love for people. But what do we see in verse 19 after Daniel expresses his concern? I'm alarmed by this. I know I need to tell you the truth, king, but I really am struggling with it. What does the king say in response? Daniel let not the dream or the interpretation of the dream alarm you. He looks at Daniel and he says, it's okay. Don't be frightened. Don't be scared by it. Deliver the truth to me. We've got this friendship that we've gained over the years. And now Daniel is fully equipped to stand firm like God calls us to and stand to deliver the truth. And so what we see in verses 20 through 27 is Daniel accurately interpreting the dream. King Nebuchadnezzar is the great tree. It symbolizes his greatness. But we see that the king or the tree is chopped down with only a stump remaining. Then the king is going to live like an animal outdoors in the field until seven periods of time pass. All of this is going to happen to teach the king a valuable lesson. That lesson is found in verse 25 when scripture says that the most high is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to whoever and anyone he wants. There's your lesson. Why is this happening? Why would God use this type of correction? What is the purpose of this correction? Verse 25, so that Nebuchadnezzar once and for all acknowledges who's in charge. Up until this point, Nebuchadnezzar has had a softening of his heart. He's had indications that he's starting to recognize that there are other things at play here, but he has yet to be fully humbled and acknowledge that he is not the great king, but God is the most high. And so verse 25 tells us that this is all happening to bring Nebuchadnezzar to a point of recognition that God is the most high God. Verse 26 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar is actually going to get his kingdom back and his power back once he comes to his spiritual senses. Once he recognizes that this is not just an earthly thing, that this is a spiritual lesson, that not all is well just because your little kingdom on earth feels well. Nebuchadnezzar has to realize that there is a bigger picture here and that he needs to give the throne of his life to God himself, not to himself. And that's what God is teaching Nebuchadnezzar. What we can also see in this is that God is actually a gracious and loving God. 
who is quick to forgive and show mercy. Do you see the promise that's wrapped up in this dream interpretation? Yes, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom's gonna get cut down. Yes, he's gonna be humbled to the point of being a beast, but there's a promise. Your kingdom's gonna come back to you when you recognize who's in charge. And in fact, we see in verse 28 later that Nebuchadnezzar had 12 months before this correction actually happened, which means God is patient. God is loving. He didn't deliver this dream interpretation through Daniel and then suddenly just smack Nebuchadnezzar with the truth and the reality that he was now a beast in the field. There was a waiting period, essentially. Come to your senses, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel even warns him, would you please come to your senses? I don't like the reality of what's happening. You're my friend, and I want you to get it before it's too late. And what I see in that is that God is a gracious and loving God, but he is very direct in what he wants. Because in verse 27, we see another truth about God. Not only does he call us to stand for the truth, but he calls us to repent and he calls us to be righteous. Daniel even says that to the king. Basically, repent, turn away from what you are doing and be righteous. Get away from the sin. Humble yourself before almighty God. That's what Daniel is telling the king. That's what God is calling us to do. Repent, turn away from your sin. And some of you this morning might go, wait a minute, I have too much sin. I have this huge pile of sin or I have this one sin that is an insurmountable thing that even God, and I know you're calling him the most high God, but there's no way that he can do anything with that. I'm a mess. Do you know who else is a mess? Every other man, every other woman. From Daniel, you know who else is a mess? Nebuchadnezzar. What a mess this guy is. We've talked about the murder and the accusation, the attempted murder, his ruthless rule, how he put himself on the throne and he was so prideful and arrogant. This guy, the most powerful king in the world, is being told it's not too late. It's not too late to follow God. So you may be sitting here right now thinking, I've lived my whole life. It's too late. It's the end for me. There's no, there's no hope. There is hope. What you may be hearing, what you are hearing, if you're hearing that, is a lie from Satan. He wants you to think that it's too late. He wants you to think that nobody can overcome. But Jesus already did on the cross. It is never too late to follow God. And Daniel ends the interpretation of this dream with Nebuchadnezzar by telling him that. Repent, turn away, do it right now because we don't know when the end is gonna happen. We don't know in scripture if Daniel knew that there was gonna be 12 months that Nebuchadnezzar had to repent. We don't know. We don't know sitting right here if Jesus is gonna come back right now. Could have just happened. We don't know, which means your eternity hangs on the line and it is never too late to follow God through Jesus Christ. We also know that it's never too late to change your ways. Not only does Daniel say repent, but then he says, start being kind to the needy. Show grace, show mercy to people who are oppressed. So not only is it never too late to follow, it is never too late to change your ways. Through the power of Jesus Christ, you can change your ways. Maybe kindness doesn't come easy to you. 
It can because Jesus is kind and compassion. And when you ask him to be your savior, you acknowledge that he and only he is the savior. He dwells inside of you through the power of the Holy Spirit and fleshes out his kindness, his love, his compassion. It is never too late to change your ways. But what we see in this call to repentance and righteousness is that Nebuchadnezzar had to face his sin, his sin of pride, his fear of being number two, not number one. That's a great fear that he had because his pride ruled him. And so he had to say, I'm not in charge, God is. And he had to face his sins. We are not told what the king said on that day in response to the dream. In fact, the verses that follow take the reader into the future to at least one year later, and then seven periods of time beyond that. Clearly, we don't see a need in Scripture to tell us what happened in that private conversation between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar as a response to the interpretation of the dream. But what we do see is that Daniel did not back down from speaking the truth to speaking God's word into the life of the most powerful man in the world. And by doing that, he gave us an example of the backbone that's needed to be faithful when the opportunity comes. Daniel shows us that we have to stand for the truth, that in love, in compassion, we need to call people, ourselves included, to repentance and righteousness. That's what we see from this story. But we also see in verses 28 through 33 that God calls us to be humble. I already mentioned that verse 29 to me indicates that God is patient because it says at the end of 12 months, there was time for Nebuchadnezzar to repent and he didn't. Do you notice what he says as he stands on the rooftop of his royal palace in Babylon? He says this, is not this great Babylon that I have built by my mighty power, my glory, my majesty. He's standing on the rooftop 12 months later, having no indication to us that he learned that he was going to be cut down. He's still filled with arrogance and pride. And scripture tells us that while the words were still in his mouth, all of these things happened to him. You may look at just that one detail and say, God's not patient. He didn't even let him finish talking before he punished him. He had 12 months. He had a lifetime to acknowledge through Daniel, through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, standing firm in the truth, declaring the power and the majesty of God Almighty. And Nebuchadnezzar never got it. And now, essentially, he's going to choke on his words. Look at me. Look at my glory. And what he was saying was true about the city of Babylon. The city of Babylon was beautiful. There are a lot of archaeology studies that want to disprove scripture that Nebuchadnezzar built it up to be great. And they attribute that Babylon wasn't great until later. We see from scripture Babylon was a great city. In fact, every brick of the royal palace had an inscription on it that was Nebuchadnezzar, it was this long thing that I had in my notes, but I can't read it to you. But it was this long inscription about Nebuchadnezzar himself. I am the descendant of this person and that person. And every brick proclaimed this prideful arrogance of how mighty Nebuchadnezzar was. But it was a beautiful city. There were hanging gardens. There were huge, massive building projects. It was beautiful. 
Nebuchadnezzar wasn't lying in his statement of the beauty of the city. What was happening here is that he was giving himself all of the credit. Everything that's happened in this city, in this life, is because I am so great. And he stood there on a throne that was about to be cut out from underneath him because we are not on the throne. God Almighty is on the throne, and he is patient with us. He gives us time, but we don't know how much, and so it's a desperate thing to acknowledge who he is. And what we see is God calls us to be humble. He's patient doing it, but there is an end to it. We have to answer, and so God demonstrates correction. God corrects Nebuchadnezzar. He gave him the chance to be humble on his own doing before God, but God has to now take over and he has to humble Nebuchadnezzar. We see that while the words were still in his mouth, the voice from heaven said, it's now happening. And immediately he became like a beast of the field. He ate grass. Some people will attribute this to a mental disorder. We've tried over the years, or man has tried to give some scientific reason why suddenly a guy would go from a king status to wandering around in a field on all fours and eating grass. And there are scientific studies that there is this insomnia that has a long scientific word, but basically what it means is you think you're an ox. So science has told us that this is a disorder, but whether or not science could confirm this story or not, what we see is the truth of Scripture that God himself humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He struck him down in his pride to bring him to a point of humility. Whether it's confirmed by science or not doesn't matter. God himself did it, and he used whatever means he needed to use because he's the creator. He is the most high, which we see Nebuchadnezzar declare in a little bit. But right now, he got struck down, he's humbled, and now he has nothing. He has nothing. He doesn't even have his mind to him. God demonstrates correction. And he calls us to be humble. And what we see is that as a result of being humbled, as a result of Nebuchadnezzar having nothing to cling to, the only thing left is the proper view of God. The only thing left is to finally face the fact, the reality of who's in charge. And scripture tells us that his worship of God that we read at the end of chapter four is not while he's crazy. It's not while he's a beast in the field. So you can't look at scripture and say, well, the only reasonable way to worship God is if you're insane. Christians have been accused of being insane, right? You worship this God, this mystical God of the air. It doesn't make sense. But scripture doesn't tell us that he worshiped God in his craziness. It actually says, when my reason returned to me, he finally had the proper perspective. What was getting in the way was his pride, what was getting in the way wasn't logic and reason and all of those things. It was pride. And when that was struck away from him and he had nothing, the only proper view is to look and go, it's God all along. God is worthy of our worship. 
You see, the expected result of knowing who God is, is worship. I like jokes that are unexpected. I like a punchline where your brain has already started to travel one direction in the joke, and then the punchline just kind of socks you, and it's like, whoa, that was a confusing thing. An example of that is, I don't understand how people don't eat the crust. The crust is the best part, even if it tastes different than the rest of the watermelon. See? Unexpected, right? Unexpected. I like jokes like that. I was actually raised as an only child. My siblings didn't like that very much. See? Unexpected, okay? And one of the most recent topics in society today, there's TV shows about it, there's books. People will post a picture online of like a crowd, and, and they, they love the idea of time travel. How is time travel happening? And people think it's real. And so it's become this like cultural phenomenon to talk about time travel. I was actually going to tell you a joke about time travel, but you didn't like it. Unexpected jokes, I like that. But what's not unexpected is that when you fully realize who God is and there's nothing else in the way, your pride isn't in the way, your reason is not trying to figure out all the facts and prove him with science and all these other things, when you simply are humbled to the point of recognizing that I am not God, but he is, then it is extremely reasonable. In fact, it is the only accurate thing to do is worship God. And that's what we see in the story with Nebuchadnezzar. Up until this point, pride had gotten in the way. But now he's humbled, and he worships God as the only reasonable response to understanding who God is. And so we see that God also calls us to exalt him. Not only does he call us to worship him, but he is worthy of worship. By his very nature, he demands worship. The more that you understand about God, the deeper that you go, the less that you put yourself in this position of being worshipped and you realize that it's only God and you study him, you read his word, you understand who he is, it is reasonable to more and more and more in your everyday life worship him and exalt him. And God calls us to exalt him. So today you might be sitting here saying, yeah, I realize I'm kind of a selfish person. I realize that there's a lot of areas in my life that I've given myself credit for. And maybe this, this ruthless king is a little bit relatable to you because you can see the areas of your life where you've put yourself on the throne, where you've given yourself credit for success, where anything that goes wrong is always someone else's fault and I'm going to respond from this high position. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was at. That's where he was at. But what you need to cling to is that it is never too late to follow God. It is never too late to turn your life over to Jesus Christ as Savior. You can't leave here today thinking that maybe you have 12 months just like the king in Daniel that you learned about today had. You don't know that. We don't know. What we do know is that none of us are the Savior. None of us are God most high. And remember the whole purpose of this correction from God in verse 25 was that Nebuchadnezzar finally realizes once and for all, after all of the indications that he's had to turn to God, 
this situation of cutting out his throne, cutting out his power, making him a beast of the field, all of it was not to be mean, but, but it was to draw him closer to God in recognition that he and he alone is the most high God. So I have four responses that actually came from Charles Spurgeon of what is the appropriate, reasonable response to understanding the greatness and the sovereignty of God. So very quickly, the first reasonable response to hearing about how great God is, to knowing that Jesus Christ is the Savior who went to the cross for your sins, the first response that's reasonable is to have a humble heart of adoration. You can't face the reality that Jesus Christ went and died for you so that you could have forgiveness of sins, that you don't have to feel the wrath of God who demands perfect judgment, who is holy and righteous, and you are not, and I am not. But through Jesus Christ, you can have all of that taken away because he paid for it on the cross. You can't face that reality without having humble adoration. You can face the reality of Jesus Christ going to the cross and have one of two responses. The first one is humble adoration. The only other option is rejection. That's it. There's no happy medium. There's no customizing the message. There's no making yourself feel better that you don't need to face your sin. Nebuchadnezzar had to face his sin because God calls us to repent and to be righteous. And when we face the fact that Jesus died for us, you either have to reject it or you have to have humble adoration. So we need to push our, our pride aside. We need to have the proper view of God and we need to worship him with a humble heart. We also need to show a heart of unquestioning acceptance. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't wonder what scripture means and study scripture and ask questions. What this is referring to specifically is the gift of Jesus Christ is free. So many people argue with this idea because we don't know what free means. Free always comes with some strings attached. Free always means now I'm going to get all these spam emails in my inbox because you said it was free, but it's not really free. There's always a catch. But with God, who sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins, that is a free gift. The response from us needs to have a heart of full acceptance that there is nothing we need to do except accept that gift. The third thing is that we need to exercise the spirit of reverent love. We saw Daniel and his relationship with Nebuchadnezzar growing in friendship, growing in love for each other. It's a reasonable response when we recognize the greatness and the sovereignty of God to exercise the spirit of reverent love for the lost world, for fellow believers. We are creations of the most high God. We need to love them. The fourth response and the final thing is that once we recognize the true sovereignty and the greatness of God, we come to acceptance of Jesus Christ alone as our Savior our spirit can have profound delight. Our spirit can be so delighted that the circumstances of this world, it's not that they don't matter and that they don't affect us, but they can't penetrate your soul. There is nothing 
When you give your life to Jesus Christ, there is nothing stronger that can even put a nick on your soul anymore because it is protected by God himself who is the most high, which means our soul, the very lifeblood of what operates us and drives us can be delighted constantly with joy, comfort, peace, gentleness, love, anything you can imagine that is a characteristic of God himself, we are delighted in our soul because you can't touch that because God holds us in his hand. So as you contemplate today the greatness and the sovereignty of God, I have two challenges. One, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, and you know the reality, the truth of what he did for your sin, and you already have accepted him in your life, what areas do you need to give up yet again to him where maybe you're prideful, maybe you're selfish? And I want you to use these last two songs, if you're already a believer, to grow closer in recognition to the Most High God. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's two options. There's continued rejection because the truth has been presented to you. You either reject it or the other option, you come to this altar and you declare with your heart what we're going to sing in the final two songs. Because Nebuchadnezzar went from most powerful high, which we all think we are so great, and he was humbled to the point of recognizing the truth of who God is. And then he was built back up. You today can go from this high pride position that you don't need a savior and be humbled before the altar in recognition that it's only Jesus Christ who you can find salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, and be humbled before him. And then in a moment of acceptance, you are built back up in his kingdom, eternally cared for and protected. So no matter what happens, your soul can be comforted and at peace. You're going to have an opportunity during these last two songs to stop rejecting Jesus Christ and come forward or to worship him closer than you ever have. These last two songs are a declaration. They declare of what we believe, and why we believe it. Sing it loud with passion and excitement. Come to Jesus so that the moment you declare that he is Savior, you can join us in that song. Would you sing with us today? There is only one sound. 
Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit, and He's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that He conquered death. We believe in the resurrection, and He's coming back again. We believe. to Jesus Christ. And once you do that, there's no power of hell. There's no scheme of man. There's nothing that can defeat him. And he is calling you out today to come forward, to give your life to him. So that not just this decision that might affect the rest of your day, this decision affects your eternity. And your eternity can be with him through Jesus Christ. For the rest of you, would you declare in this last song that you truly believe in the most high God, that there is nothing else that matters in this moment except your worship, your exaltation of the most high God who loves you so much that he gave his son Jesus Christ to die for you. Declare that today with power, with passion, with the worth who God is in mind, would you praise him today? Oh, 
Father everlasting, the all-creating one, God Almighty. Through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is free and one. I believe in the resurrection. Then we will rise again. Oh, I believe in the name of Jesus.
I believe in life eternal. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the saints' communion and in your holy church. I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. Amen. We close with Psalm 95, this declaration. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand, for the Lord is a great God. God, would you declare that with your life as you go today? Thank you.